Hello everyone, this is our Sunday School lesson for the first Sunday in October of 2020 and uh, we are starting a new topic and I'm excited about it. Now uh, remember that not only uh, are we starting a new month and a new topic, but on the 18th we'll actually be meeting in our Sunday School classes again. So pray for your teachers and teachers. Be sure you contact all your people and let's have a, a great day and a great time when we get together for our uh, Sunday school in our rooms and being together. Uh, and just remember, there'll be some who are going to be comfortable. There are going to be some who are not. And uh, we want everyone to be there because they want to be there, because they are excited about being there, and not to be there and feel like they are forced or squeezed or constrained or anything like that. Uh, we want it to be a, a joyous time. So we're looking forward to that. And uh, teachers, if there are any concerns that you have, be sure and talk to uh, Brother Mark Quittington and uh, voice those things with him. We don't want to be caught off guard by anything. He certainly doesn't. And we appreciate the work that he's been doing. Hope that you're doing well. Hope that the Lord is blessing you. And hope that you have been able to keep in contact with your class and uh, pray for one another and love one another and thank you for your time. Uh, what are we going to cover this month? Well, we're going to start a series in what I'm calling the greatest prayer ever prayed. You know, sometimes we think about the Lord's Prayer and we think about our Father which art in heaven and that type of thing. That really was not the Lord's Prayer. That was actually the Lord teaching the disciples to pray, right? Scoot back here just a little bit. And so it is uh, what I think John MacArthur calls it the model prayer. Um, that's a pretty good way of looking at it. It was really not his prayer so much as it was him teaching a pattern for the disciples to pray. Maybe it would be better known as the disciples' prayer, right? Well, this in John chapter 17, we have the longest recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is it. And uh, he is praying here and he uh, pours his heart out to his Father. And you know what a lot of people don't really understand? Jesus is praying this before he goes to the cross. This is what was on his heart as he went to the cross. Now, I think as you read through this prayer, and I would encourage you to read it, and we're just going to basically in this lesson kind of introduce it. We're not going to really be teaching it or anything like that. I think as you uh, read through this prayer, and as you consider all of the things that it says, what was on the Lord's mind as he got ready to go to the cross? Now, any of you who have been around Graceway for any length of time, you know I have great, great, great problems and disagreements with people who are saying that when Jesus is in the garden and he said, Lord, let this cut pass, that what he was trying to do was say, Lord, is there any other way? Can I do something else? How can I avoid the cross? Now, folks, think about that. 
He came here for the purpose of dying. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that he was going to die. He told his disciples, not only am I going to, but I must, see, I must suffer and I must die and be raised again. There's no other way. There was no plan B, there was no other option, and this is not Jesus all of a sudden getting cold feet. This is not Jesus just all of a sudden thinking, I don't wanna do this anymore. You know, how can we do something else? And is there another way to redeem man? I don't believe that for a minute. In fact, when you uh, read John chapter 17, you're finding out what was on his heart when he was in the garden, and it was not, how can I get out of this? Now, what does it mean then when Jesus is praying, let the cup pass? Okay, just give you my sanctified two cents. I think he was praying, Lord, whenever the judgment for believers' sins comes upon me, let it pass. Don't leave me in it. The Bible says, remember what Paul wrote, that he who knew no sin, he became sin for us, right? Can you imagine the God who has eyes purer than to look upon iniquity now sees his own son becoming sin, our sin, and being judged? And I think it was just the Lord Jesus praying, Lord, let the judgment pass. Don't leave me here. Don't leave me here. And... um why would he pray that? Was that a lack of faith? Well, I don't think so. I think it's the kind of thing where, how many times have you prayed, oh Lord, be with us? And yet you know, you know that he's promised he will never leave you or forsake you. You don't need to pray that prayer. You pray for the Lord to walk with you and to guide you. Hadn't he promised to do that already? But there's something about us that we need to express and hold on to that. And I think that's all that the Lord Jesus is doing, is expressing what is really on his heart. You're going to judge me for the sins of everyone who will put their faith in me. Don't leave me there. Let it pass. And I think it's the same thing that he's doing when he prays in John 17, glorify me with the glory that I had before I came to earth. In other words, let this time of humiliation and let this time of, of limitation and all of that, let it pass and bring me back to where I was before. I think that's the whole thing about the cup, letting the bitter cup path pass and getting back in his relationship. And someone has pointed out too, that it's interesting that when Jesus is on the cross, when he first speaks, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But then in the middle, when he is being judged in our place, he doesn't call him Father, does he? The relationship has been broken, at least to some degree. I don't know fully how to understand that, but to some degree, it is broken as he becomes sin. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when the judgment has passed and it's finished, he says, Father, once again, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And so we, we see this in John 17, in my mind anyway, it pulls it um, all together. So let's read a few verses in here and uh, we'll talk about it and we'll get ready for, I think, what is going to be a rich and exciting and joy-filled study. The greatest prayer ever prayed. Okay, let's begin reading. Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes to heaven. It's interesting, so many times in the Bible they did not close their eyes and they didn't bow their heads, did they? They looked up, it's amazing. Um, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God and knowing Christ always goes together. You can't know one without knowing the other in salvation. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, let this temporary time of humiliation pass. Okay, that's the plan. He's just agreeing with the plan. Verse six, I have manifested your name to the men, the disciples, whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You have given them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So without reading all of it, isn't that uh, just a, a beautiful and wonderful thing that the Lord is praying for. And you'll notice that he does pray for himself because there's certainly nothing wrong with that. There are some things that you can't really pray for about me. I have to pray for those things. And there's some things you can only pray for about yourself. Only you know the struggles and the hidden, the secret things that are going on in your life, and that's true with mine as well. We ought to pray for ourselves. And Jesus prayed for himself, but himself. But let us also remember we should not pray only, only for ourselves. And there are some people that they never get around to praying for anyone else. There are some people that anytime they pray, it's all about them. It's all about their needs, their desires. It's all about where they are and their struggles and they don't really have time to pray for anyone else. Isn't it interesting that the sinless, sovereign, 
Savior of the world, getting ready to go to the cross to suffer unspeakable agony, took the time to pray for his disciples. And later on, you'll find in this passage, he took the time to pray for you because you are one of the ones who will believe in him through the words of the disciples, the apostles, the gospel. And so uh, I want you to think about that and think about your prayer life. Do you ever spend any time praying for anyone else? <clears throat> the other thing that struck me, did you notice how he described the men that were his followers? He talks to them, or talks about them as belonging to the Father before they ever came to believe in Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? There are people out there in the world that you're going to run into at various times, and somebody's going to run into them basically every day. And you know what? God the Father would say to you and to me, that one is mine. That one is mine. And it's just a matter of time before they come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. You'll also notice in this how important things like glory are. Jesus speaks about the glory. After all, our purpose on earth is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and glory to the Father. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do all things to the glory of God. Um, when we think about the, the glory of God and showing forth that glory, it's something that is important to the Lord. It's on his heart. It ought to be on our heart as well. And so many times we seek glory for ourselves. We seek glory uh, in areas and ways that are inappropriate. And we really ought to be focused upon him and upon his glory. How does this glorify God? How does this bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's one aspect of glory, to honor someone. You glorify them. You give them glory. Another one is to think about the splendor, the, the revealing of, of someone's true character and nature. How does the way that I live show the nature and the character of the Lord? Certainly we want to honor him. We do that when we go to church and if we sing songs like, like the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You, you know that. That's one way that we honor the Lord. But then every day that we live and in every situation that we live, we should be displaying the glory of God, letting his brightness, letting his light shine in the midst of abject darkness and suffering and pain sometimes. It's Paul and Silas singing songs and hymns to the Lord at midnight in the prison. It's that type of thing. And so glory is really important here. Did you notice something else that is important? And that is the word of God. Notice how many times the Lord speaks of, I gave them the words that you gave to me. Uh, that's very important to the Lord. You remember in the Psalms, it says that he has exalted 
his word above his name. Well, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? To think that the Lord has that much uh, respect and that much thought about his word that it's exalted above his name. Pretty amazing. Okay, now if you'll think about it, there are some things that so many times people get wrong. And if you get these wrong, it's going to really throw your whole Christian life out of kelter. In fact, if you get these things wrong, you may be a good moral person. <clears throat> you may be a church member, but you're certainly not a Christian. A Christian is a person who glorifies God. That's the purpose of their life, to glorify God, to live for his honor, to live to make him known. And a Christian also is uh, someone who is focused on the word of God. We want to know what God says. We want to know who he is. And we want to know how to live in the way that will honor him. But you know, there's another thing we tend to get wrong, and that is so many people today think that God was just up there in neutral, lonely and depressed, and then all of a sudden, I made a choice to trust in Christ, and oh, the Lord is so happy now to have me. And we don't understand that we didn't choose God, he chose us, and that we are the ones that were given by the Father as love gifts to his Son. We are given to him, and uh, that's these verses are full of it. You have given me um, them, Jesus says. It's amazing. Now, if you get that wrong, you are going to miss out on some of the riches of your Christian life because you're not going to understand. You're going to think that maybe God just might a little bit owe you because you have chosen him. And the truth of the matter is you had nothing to do with it. You were given to Christ from the Father. You also may kind of have the idea that the Christian life is how can I get the all-powerful God of the universe to answer my prayers, to do my will, to fill my life with health and wealth and all of those kind of things. And you'll get it all twisted and out of control because you'll think and act as if God exists solely for your benefit, as if he's your heavenly bellboy. You ring and here he comes running. That you uh, are treating him as though he's a divine butler or something like that. And that is so, so out of, um, out of kilter, I guess, we would say. There's no better way to put it, is there? And if we get mixed up on the word of God, thinking that uh, the word of God is just kind of, you know, extra, it's not that big a deal, it really doesn't matter all that much, we're just living life, trying to muddle through the best way that we can. Doing things in the way that seems right to us. Well, you know what the scripture tells us. There's a way that seems right 
In other words, it looks right, it feels right, but the end thereof are the ways of destruction. See, and we, we mess up on these things. Now, if you get all of that kind of um, discombobulated, your life is going to be a mess. In fact, you might not even, as I said earlier, be a Christian. That's why we examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. And you know what? God will give you assurance if you truly are saved. And he will assure you that you belong to him because he has chosen you. And he will assure you that you are his child because you are living for his glory and you want him to be glorified and honored in your life. And he will assure you that you are his child through the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. And so these things are very important and they're on the heart of Jesus. Now, as we uh, kind of outline the lesson today, I want you to notice this is a prayer of context. What do I mean by that? Well, the very first thing that the Lord Jesus has to say, it says he spoke these words, lifted up his eyes, and then began to pray. Okay, what words? What words is he talking about in verse one? Well, he's talking about the upper room discourse. He's talking about, I believe it's uh, John 13 through 16, three whole, whole chapters where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, warning them and preparing them for his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. They're going to have to live life without him, and it's going to be a difficult life. In fact, at the end of chapter 16, he even tells them, in the world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So Jesus is praying, John 17, in the context of his death, in the context of his disciples being left alone, or it's going to feel that way anyway. And so he prays for them. Hey, teachers, can I speak to you and can I speak to me? How often do we actually contextualize our praying to the things we've been teaching? You know, I hear teachers say, well, I taught them that. They're just not living up to it. Yeah, but did we pray it into their life? It's as though Jesus has spent all this time speaking to them and preparing them, and now he's got to pray it into the depth of their soul. wonder how the Lord would bless if we not just said, well, we taught them, but what about if we prayed it into them, if we really agonized and interceded in prayer on behalf of those that we were teaching so that it was more than just an intellectual thing, a mind to a mind. It would be more of a heart to a heart. See what I mean? And that's what Jesus is doing as he agonizes over not only what he's going to go through, but what his disciples are going to go through, what they are going to need. Okay? Secondly, I notice that this prayer is uh, a confirming prayer. 
you know, when Jesus talks about all of this, it's not just about him. It includes him, and he is important in all of this, of course. But it also is about the disciples, who they are, how they got to be disciples, what God is doing in their life, what God is praying for them, asking God to keep them while they're in the world. And uh, then he also prays for, later on, we didn't read it, but it's on down in there, for those who will believe through their word. You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked on the earth. Been a lot of people born. A lot of people have died during that time. And out of all of those billions, billions of people, if you know him today, you're a minority. Now, don't let that cause you to shrink back. Oh, no, there's just so few of us. That doesn't matter. God's always a majority. But here's the amazing thing. Out of all of the people that have ever lived here on the earth, God has chosen you to walk with him and to know him and to love him, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of our souls. That's an amazing thing. And how do we know that? We are love gifts from God the Father to his own Son. This is the grace of God. Now, thirdly, I want you to notice this is a circular prayer. Now, you're going to notice as you read through this that the Lord talks about something, prays about something, and he goes on down, then he prays about it again. Why does he repeat himself? Did he forget? Is he under such stress and under such pressure? Excuse me while I'm drinking here. I've got an extremely dry mouth. What's going on? Lord, you're praying in circles. You know, uh, Jesus warned us against praying like the heathen. And what did the heathen do? They prayed long prayers because they supposed that the more words they could string together and the better they could make them sound, the more impressive they would be to their gods. He also said that they practiced something called vain repetition. Now, Jesus is not saying you can't ever repeat yourself in prayer because if that's the case, then he violated it, didn't he? The key is the word vain. You know what the word vain means? It means empty, empty. I wonder how many people pray, quote unquote, pray, but the words that they pray are just mindless, empty repetition. Well, Jesus is not praying mindlessly or emptily. He's praying here with purpose. And it's like every time he circles back to what he prayed about before, he gets a little bit wider. He picks up a little bit more. And so he is praying in this, and you'll notice several themes that are going to be repeated, and they're going to repeated, be repeated several different times because they're on the heart of God, but they're going to be with a purpose, and they're going to get a little bit bigger every time he circles back to them. And then notice here that it's what I would call a communicative prayer. Uh, Jesus is communicating with his Father, and yet as these things are recorded, they are communicating 
<coughs> Excuse me. Not over the pneumonia yet. They are communicating truths about God. He's teaching us. Well, he teaches us about Christ. You'll notice in here he tells us that Jesus is not just someone who showed up, you know, happened to be in a manger. Uh, let's see what we can do with him. He's the pre-existent one. He was with the Word. And this is a theme of John's in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? He tells us that this pre-existent Jesus Christ is the Creator. Let there be light. We know that from Genesis. That was Jesus. That was Jesus. Pre-existent. God always. There wasn't a time where he became God or took up godliness or godhood. He always has been God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternal, existent, existing eternally and coexistent with one another and co-equal in their nature and attributes. God is, the Father is not the Son, and the Father and the Son are not the Holy Spirit. Okay? They're three distinct persons, but they're not inferior to each other. The Holy Spirit is not third string. Okay? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Pre-existent. And notice here that Jesus speaks of uh, he had glory. Glory. There's revealing glory, there's radiant glory, and then Jesus prays about having restored glory when he gets back to heaven. Speaking of which, can you imagine what kind of celebration it must have been when Jesus ascended? Mm. Notice that Jesus is also the one, not only preexistent, not only the one with glory, but with authority. Authority. Um, authority over all flesh, it says. Did you know that this world is uh, in rebellion to the Lord Jesus? Did you know that God, that Jesus Christ, has full claim on each and every life on planet Earth right now? He has authority over them but he has specific authority over us because we have submitted to him as Lord, right? Glorify your son. The hour has come. This is the time. Glorify your son so that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now, he's got the authority to save anybody and everybody, doesn't he? Over all flesh. And all flesh are accountable to him. That's why one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? But eternal life is only given to those who trust in him. And who are the ones who trust in him? Well, notice how his authority is even in here. That you, or that he, pardon me, should give eternal life 
to as many as you have given him. It's not just hope somebody will come. Holy Spirit, let's cross our fingers and let's do everything we can and then hope that somebody chooses us, that somebody will come along. This is going to happen. It's rigged. It's a, it's a done deal. According to what Jesus says. You have problems with that? Go talk to him. I didn't say it. And notice here that this is the idea of submission. Jesus had a life of submission to the Father and we are called to live into submission with him as well. Self-denial, obedience, and even suffering for his sake. This is going to be a great, great study. And we're going to have a great time looking at these things and seeing what is on the heart of God. And as you do this, there's one more thing I'd like for you to do. Would you take a look at your prayer life and see if it matches up with Jesus? Does the subject of your prayer match up with the subject of Jesus' prayer? Do you have the same things on your heart that Jesus has on his heart? You know, something's got to change. And our nation is in horrible trouble because God's people don't pray. And when we do pray, we don't pray about the same things that God prays about. Guess who needs to change? Well, it's not him. It's us. And thank God, by his grace, we can change. May the Lord bless you and thank you for taking time to listen.